Hey, guys, we, uh, we are at the end of this. Um, I, I'm personally um, ready to start talking about new things. Um, so I'm really excited for what's coming up in the next couple of weeks, and I want to address that really quick before we do conclude our series. Skeptics, welcome. Next week, you do not want to miss, we're having our baptism Sunday here next Sunday, and what's really cool about this baptism Sunday in particular is that for the first time in the history of our church, uh, we are having it here on campus during our services. And so um, it's going to be really great. Uh, the whole Sunday will be dedicated to baptisms. We'll talk about what baptism is, and then we'll share stories about life change and transformation. Uh, and, and people will tell you why they've decided uh, to do this. And so please be present next Sunday. It's just going to be such a phenomenal Sunday. And then the, uh, the Sunday after that, we are starting a series, our summer series, that will run towards the beginning of August uh, called Storytime with Jesus. Uh, Jesus told all sorts of great stories um, in the New Testament. Uh, stories have this incredible power to cut through um, just so, so much. You know, life experiences, um, doubt, questioning, skepticism, right, to the, right through the, the bone and marrow, right to the very heart of people. And so there are cards like this, invitation cards. If you guys want to take some of these, pass them out to people you might think might be interested in joining you this summer at Restoration Church. And then there's a list of all of our summer, summer Sunday... Su- Summer Sunday fun days here as well. So join us as we begin Storytime with Jesus in two weeks from now. But again, next week is our Baptism Sunday. But this Sunday, today, we are talking about the problem of doubt. Now, throughout this whole series, I have begun almost every single message by saying, you know what, this may not be an issue for you. You know, uh, the problem of God's existence may not be a problem for you. The problem of evil in the world may not be a problem for you, but... It most certainly is a problem for your neighbor or for your friend or for your coworker, maybe a family member. But the problem of doubt is, is different. I think the problem of doubt actually is a problem for Christians. It's typically a problem for Christians, right? Skepticism is typically a problem for Christians. It's an actual problem for Christians. You know, there are questions that keep, peep, keep popping up in our minds. And we wonder at, at, at times, I think, if that's permitted. Courtney had said we all doubt, and that's very much true, but don't we all sometimes wonder if that's permitted? It's like, I question God's existence. Is that permitted? If I question God's existence, does that disqualify me from something? If I'm not entirely sure about all the various theological issues and about how I wrestle them to the ground, does that mean I'm not saved? Does that mean something about my salvation? Does that mean something? Am I disqualified from something? You wonder if it's permitted. You wonder if some question rises up in you, if it, if, it, if it disqualifies you from something. You know, what if you question the flood narrative? Uh, I don't know. I, I can't wrap my head around the, some belief in the fact that the flood narrative actually happened. What about Jonah spending three days in the belly of a fish? Like, can I, I can't wrap my head around that. I just can't convince myself. You know, I cannot be certain that that actually happened in existence. What if I question God's existence? You know, like, what, what, if, what if you thought perhaps... That your doubts about God's willingness to heal your child is the reason that your child's not healed? Or what if you doubt that God actually loves you? See, the problem of doubt is not a problem for those who don't believe, right? They're fine with their doubt. They're fine with their skepticism. They're fine with it all. It's the problem of doubt is a, is a problem for Christians. It's a problem for those of us who do believe. And doubt is a problem, I suggest, because we have been convinced that one's faith is as strong as it is certain. We think that we, uh, the more certain we are, the more God will be involved in our lives. That if I can just convince myself of, you know, some psychological, cognitive, historical fact or something, 
that maybe God will be more invested in my life. Maybe God will get involved in my life. Maybe the way my life is right now and the pain and the hurt and the stress and the anxiety I feel is because I don't have enough faith. I'm not certain about certain things. I haven't convinced myself of the historicity of certain things. Now, one might think that a purpose of a series like this is to tie up every loose end, is to cross every T and dot every I, and to answer every question that you might have regarding the Christian faith. But in regards to all of that, my hope with this series was that we would become people who learn to question and learn to question well. A people that can learn to hold uncertainty and faith together as we become knowers and lovers of God in a relationship rather than examiners of God as a theory. Because so often, uh, so, so many of us get into this idea that, you know, I can, I can theorize about God as a concept, right? I can conceptualize about him and I can know him and I can examine him and analyze him and I, I can know everything about him, but I may not have a relationship with this being. I've created a deity in my mind that is actually, I keep at arm's length out there in the thought world somewhere. You know, this is actually the original hope of the reformers in the 16th century. They wanted to unlock Christianity from the mechanism of religion and tradition and make relationship and knowledge of God in relationship viable and attainable to everybody. They wanted everybody to be in a personal, intimate relationship with God. But quickly after the Reformation, the scientific revolution began, which on its heels quickly followed by the industrial revolution, which then, you know, inspired... uh, the Enlightenment, the church was shoved into a corner. The church wasn't now the the most popular place on Sunday mornings. The church now needed to defend the God that they claimed they believed in. The church was losing its authority over the masses as people had other options for thought and life that was never afforded them before. So to have knowledge of God no longer meant to be in intimate relationship with God, It meant to know everything about God so that you can have a theological defense about all of the bombardment of new theories that were were happening out in the world. So the very thing the Protestant church was hoping to avoid by branching off from the Catholic church, right, the the lifeless, relationless religion it was in the 16th century, is exactly what Protestantism had become. It reduced God to a problem to be figured out and defended against a world that was increasingly seeing God as less and less important. As the world became more and more secularized, God became less and less important. The, the, the world once relied on God to answer all the questions they had about life, but now there are all these new theories and science and philosophy to answer all the questions they had. They didn't need God anymore. And so the reason that doubt is so often condemned in Christian thinking is because we are trying to cast God into a mold. You know, we, we, we want a God that we can form and create and pin down and analyze and reduce and examine and put in textbooks. We want a God that we can know entirely, but we want a God that we can defend against the masses. We want a God we can put under a microscope and make him small, which reduces him and strips him of all the mystery and, and therefore any possibility of relationship. But this God is a God that can be defended. Think of it this way. You know, I sometimes do marriage counseling and, and oftentimes couples will tell me that they're bored in their marriage. Oh, you know, I'm just bored in my marriage. You know, we've come to the end of everything that we can know about each other. It's like, there's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else to learn. There's nowhere else to, to go in this marriage. I just don't know. Do we want to stay in it? Or should we just abandon it? There's nothing left to explore. You know, the husband will say, you know, I just, I know everything about her. And I'll say, well, tell me, tell me what you know about her. He'll say, well, uh, she has brown hair and brown eyes. 
Uh, she's 5'4", but she has a size 9 shoe, you know, and um, she, she grew up in Allentown, but she went to school in Temple. That's where we met, fell in love. You know, we got married on this, on this date. Uh, she was a pre-med major. Uh, she works as a, as a dental hygienist. She loves the garden. I don't know what else is there to know about her, you know, that basically sums it up. <laughs> and I'll say, okay, you know, really, really, when I asked you to tell me about your wife, you, you basically just gave me a whole list of facts. Like, you know, she's a math problem to solve or some you know, scientific exploration to be had. <laughs> How does she feel about the fact that she's 5'4 but has a size 9 shoe? Does she, is she, is she concerned about the fact that she has really big feet for her height? Like, does that bother her? Well, I don't know. What, what, what does she think about the fact that, you know, she went to school for pre-med? You know, she wanted to be a doctor, presumably. She wanted to be a, a surgeon, right? But she's working as a dental hygienist. Nothing against dental hygienists, but she didn't go to school for that. She, she had greater ambitions than that. What does she think about that? I don't know. Why didn't she follow those ambitions? I don't know. Well, why, why does her connection with the earth and gardening, like, why does that speak to her soul? I don't know. You see, the reason you're bored is because you don't care. You're, you're bored because your marriage looks more like a game show than it does a mystery to be explored. If you're in a true, authentic relationship with someone, isn't it a mystery to explore? Isn't this person always blossoming before you, and isn't there always something then new to learn about them? And this is the reason that doubt is a problem rather than proof of a relationship or of an adventure. Instead of allowing God to be the living and active God that he is bigger than imagination and knowledge and searching full of mystery and wonder and exploration, we have reduced to something, we have reduced God to something that we can hold in our hands. We have reduced God to something that we can study. See, when you try and contain the omniscient omnipresent, omnipotent God and make a stagnant, lifeless analysis of him? You've reduced him to a trinket and you've made an idol out of certainty. You've boiled him down to something that you can know entirely and you have made an idol out of your knowledge of who you think God is. Let me share how this actually played out in my life. Maybe some of you can relate to my own story. And then we're going to look at three biblical characters really quickly and see how their faith and their relationship with God blossomed out of uncertainty. I mentioned about the Reformation. Uh, well, shortly after, the, the piety movement of the 17th century influenced all of Protestantism. The piety movement influenced everything that the, the Protestant uh, faith knew of their relationship with God. It was personal transformation. It was rebirth marked by legalism and self-righteousness. It was personal piety and devotion that became the mark of the Christian my personal devotion, my personal religion, my personal piety, my self-righteousness, this is what it meant to be a Christian. Again, the Christianity that they knew, it was being challenged by new discoveries in science and new methods in industry and new thoughts and philosophy. And so, of course, as the world was becoming more secularized, they had to bunker down and they had to say, hey, guys, yeah, the, 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 the world is, is you know, rotting away alongside us. We need to determine what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus. And what a faithful follower of Jesus looks like is devotion to God through your personal piety and your self-righteousness. Its intention was good, right? Devotion to God. Yes, we'll be faithful to God, but its practice was self-righteousness. Its practice was, was piety. Its practice was legalism. 
And though this movement had all but died in, the Amer- in America by the end of the 20th century, this movement seeded fundamentalism. This, this seeded the, the modern era of the church. It was one's own self-righteousness that mattered. It was one's own devout religious activity that showed their piety. It was the impression of faithfulness that I could give you that mattered. If I could convince you that I was a faithful follower of Jesus by my religious activities, by my personal piety, by my self-righteousness, then I was being a good Christian. Put that mask on every day. In the face of temptation, right? In the face of lust, in the face of gluttony, in the face of pride, well, I got to rise above that. I'm pious. I'm self-righteous. I don't show remorse or confess because these are truths that are hidden behind a mask that I wear. And and the reason that some of you aren't Christian is because you look at Christianity and and you see the self-righteousness and you see the self-piety and you see the legalism and you say, I want nothing to do with that. And the reason that some of your friends and your coworkers are not Christian is because they look at the Christian institution as a whole and they say, I want nothing to do with that legalistic, self-righteous, overly pious institution. There's nothing real about those people. They're all just bunch of fake people walking around as if they're holier than thou. And they want nothing to do with it. And the reason I tell you this is part of my story is because that was the Christianity I learned. That was a Christianity I was adopted into. I was a legalistic, self-righteous prick. Honestly, if you knew me back in high school, I was pointing the finger at everybody. I would call out everybody's wrongs, but never once would I admit my own. I I wore a mask of holiness. I was the greatest kid. I I looked the part perfectly, even though I was hiding, what, a gambling addiction? I was hiding all sorts of lust issues. I looked the part perfectly on the outside. I was was legalistic. I read my Bible. I went to church. I went to youth group. I I led the small groups. I did everything right. I was overly pious, I was overly self-righteous, I was overly legalistic, I looked the part perfectly, but inside, inside, was a, was a wreck of a human being. And I hid it all. And I hid all my flaws, and I hid all my hurt behind a mask of piety. Because I thought that a fake piety in my religious activity would be pleasing to God. So in my junior year of high school, I was a self-righteous baby Christian, you know, who thought he was God's gift to humanity. But I had a mess inside of me. Two weeks before my prom, my girlfriend broke up with me. I had, uh, I had you know, rented the tux already. I had um, gotten the limo. I had, you know, purchased the tickets. I'd done everything. You know, I'd spent all of this money. And I got this call. Um, I still remember this day. I got this call that she broke up with me over the phone, and she, um, and it was like it was like 20 minutes before youth group was supposed to start, and I'm, I'm and I'm sitting there dejected and hurt and sad and broken, and I've, I have this on my face. The expression is obvious, right? And so so my friend who's also in youth group, youth group with me comes over and he asks me how I'm doing. You know, like what's going on? You know, he sees me that I'm hurt and he, he comes up and asks me what's going on, and and I tell him what just happened. He says, "Well, Ross, cheer up. It's the will of God." It's the will of God, Ross, so you can't be sad about it. This is God's sovereign will for your life, so you can't be upset about it. It's for God's ultimate glory, so Ross, you can't be upset. You have to rise above it, right? You're self-righteous, right? You're pious, right? And that's what your piety demands of you, is to rise above the hurt that you're feeling and and to show the world that, that that the ways of the world and the sadness, that you're above all that. And I said, you're right. You're right. 
This is God's will for me. It's for God's glory. It's, I shouldn't be upset by it. And so I shoved all the sadness down, and I went into youth group. And I was fine until college when I realized that for the first time, my little condensed version of God, the little trinket idol that I'd created by reducing God in, in something that I could hold in my hand, right, and, and, and know entirely, and there was no mystery involved in God, came crashing to the ground in my very first class that I ever took at a university. It was a Bible college I went to. Bible 101. All it took was for the kids sitting next to me to open up a different translation of the Bible than what I was reading. And all of a sudden, all of these thoughts came into my head that I never even knew to, to, to ask before. I didn't even know there were other translations of the Bible. You, you're telling me that, you're, that this verse you know, in your Bible reads differently than it does in my Bible? Like, how, how can that be? What, what, doesn't, doesn't that change the way that we read the text? Doesn't it change the way that we understand what the Bible is trying to tell us? And if the Bible is you know, God's way of telling us about himself, then doesn't that change who God is? And all of a sudden, I had all of these thoughts that I'd never even thought to think about rush into my mind. The rush of questions about everything relating to God that flooded my mind, it hurt me. It hurt me to the core, but it was exhilarating when it wasn't traumatizing. And that was just the first class, right? That was just the beginning. I took a theology class, and my little glass trinket God that I'd created, that I had reduced down into nothing, it came shattering to the floor as all of these questions were presented before me that I'd never even dreamt were even out there that I didn't even know people were asking. There were times later in, in my college, um, my sophomore year in particular, um, l- later in my freshman year, sophomore year in particular, that, I, that I, every other day I, w- I was an atheist. <laughs> there, were, there, were gods, there, there were days I was like, yeah, I believe in God. The next day I was like, no, I'm certain God doesn't exist. I had so many questions. I had so many um, conversations going on in my mind and my heart all the time, and I just questioned everything, and I just threw God out the window. I was like, God, you don't even exist. A couple of days later, I'd come back to my senses, okay, okay, God exists, okay. But then a couple of days later, I'd say, no, there's too much evil in the world, there's too much pain, right? All the questions that I had were confusing me. And I was wasting $30,000 a year at a college that I was going to have to pay for for the next 20 years. And I wondered, what the heck was I doing with my life? Why am I wasting my life at a college studying something I don't even believe in? And so all these emotions, you know, flooded in me, and like, I wrestled with these daily, day and night, I was wrestling with all of these emotions constantly. See, I held a cognitive certainty in historical facts. It was supported by my own piety and a vague notion of Jesus as an idol I named the Christian faith, and when it was stripped apart, I had no idea what to do about it. So one winter day during my sophomore year, uh, it started snowing, and whenever it snowed, I, I made it a point, I tried to make it a point if I had time to go and take a walk around my campus. We, we had a beautiful campus, a huge lake on our campus, and it was always just especially beautiful when it was snowing. And so one day I took a walk in the falling snow and I was standing by the lake and I was having all these emotions rushing to my mind and my heart and I was trying to wrestle with all the stuff I was, I was trying to figure out about who God is and all these doubts and all these questions that were, you know, rising up for the first time in me. And all of these emotions just came flooding out of me. You see, when I, when I um, was in high school, I had a horrible mouth. I, I cursed like a sailor, right? I mean, every other word was a swear word. I just, I, I, hadn't, I didn't care, right? I mean, it was just language that I used. But when I converted to Christianity... Uh, you're self-pious, self-righteous Christians. You can't use language like that. And so I condemned that in me, and like I, I, I flipped a switch, and I didn't use any of those words ever again for a very long time. Until this day, along this lakeshore, I had all these emotions flooding out of me, and what came out of me was just a spew of profanity to the sky. I, I couldn't contain it any longer. I just started swearing at the sky and frustrated with the guy. I started yelling, God, why the am I wasting 30 grand a year on education studying something I don't even believe in? I don't even know if you exist. Why am I yelling at this guy? I don't know what I'm yelling at. I mean, the, the, the 20-minute tirade 
to the sky. Just yelling. As all these emotions came out of me. You see, I always thought that you couldn't get mad at God. Because his sovereign will is perfect after all. Right? And, and personal piety meant that you were above those worldly emotions. But I didn't care anymore, right? I mean, I'm, I'm standing there. I didn't even know if God existed anymore, so why did I care? And as I'm standing there cursing the sky, something really, what, what I thought was odd uh, began to happen. Um, a blue jay, which is odd because, you know, birds usually don't fly in snow. Um, but a blue jay flew over onto a branch about 20 feet away from me, and it started looking at me. And so we were having a staring competition, this bird on a branch. And then, and then it flew to another branch about 10 feet away from me, and it started chirping at me as if it was, like, trying to talk to me. It's like trying to say something to me. I mean, I scared wildlife away. Like, the entire campus was free of wildlife that day because my spew profanity into the sky, right? Uh, but this bird was there talking to me. And then the bird flew off above me, and it drew my attention to the snow that was falling. And of course I knew it was snowing, that's the reason I went on the walk, but for the first time I realized the beauty of the snowfall. And I, re- I remember thinking for the first time in honestly 10 years, like I, I converted to Christianity and, and there was nothing beautiful uh, about God's existence. There's, nothing, there's, n- there's no beauty in the in Christianity I converted into. For the first time in a very long time, I remember thinking that there was something amazing about these you know, quarter-sized snowflakes that were falling from the sky, which is beautiful. And I remember standing there in awe and amazement. And from deep within me, I just asked the question, God, where are you? I asked the question. Something that I was never permitted to do before. Something that I thought you know, was too low and too far beneath my self-righteousness and too far beneath my personal piety. And I asked the question, God, where are you? That was it. God, where are you? Everything up into my life to the point had convinced me to never question God. To never speak out to God in anger or confusion. You can know God. You can analyze God. You can examine God. You can study God. But you cannot question God. His sovereign will will not tolerate it. And I heard that afternoon for the very first time in my life a voice from within me saying, Ross, embrace the mystery. Ask your questions. Wrestle with what you don't understand. I want, to know, I want you to know me in relationship, right? Not just in theory. My love for you is unimaginably deep, so don't pretend that it or I can be pinned down and fit into a textbook. My invitation to you is into a relationship, And therefore, it is also an invitation into a mystery. It was this honesty, I think, that allowed God to finally break through the shield of piety that I had put before me. And and all the false pictures of him that that, that I had created, and it began to reveal his true nature. It was almost as if God were saying to me, Finally, Ross, thank you. Thank you for being honest with me. You know, that was real. That tirade that you had at the lakeshore, that was real. That is what I want from you. I want your heart. That is who I want. And now that you've given me the real you with all that is ugly in you, you're finally in a place that you can finally receive the real me with all that is beautiful about me. And my beauty can now begin to make something out of all that is ugly in you. And a beautiful transformation began to take place in me. 
It was a tirade of profanity to the sky that began my true faith in Jesus Christ. You see, I had made an idol out of certainty because I thought that was the substance of a genuine faith. But in reality, authenticity is the substance of genuine faith. And it always has been. One of the most important teachings of faith comes from a famously odd story in the Old Testament. Jacob, who is the son of Isaac, who is the son of Abraham, was a total scoundrel. His name, actually, Jacob's name, means deceiver, it means manipulator, it means cheater. He was just a scoundrel. He lived up to his name. He was the twin brother of a guy named Esau, and when, when Esau was a little older, they, uh, Jacob actually um, cheated him out of his birthright, and so Jacob stole Esau's inheritance. And from that day on, Jacob always feared that Esau was going to seek revenge on his life. So he was always afraid of what Esau would do, and so he ran in fear. He, always, he was always looking over his shoulder, wondering if Esau was going to come after him to kill him. And so one day while traveling, almost 30 years later, all right, Jacob has been looking over his shoulder for 30 years, wondering if Esau was after him. Jacob receives word that Esau is actually just up ahead. And Jacob, for the, for the first time in his life, he is convinced that he needs to humble himself. Instead of cheating his way out of this and manipulating his way out of this conundrum that he is in, he is going to humble himself and he's going to approach his brother. He's going to seek his brother's forgiveness. And it is after he decides to humble himself that we get this really, really odd story kind of nestled in between this time when he decides to approach his brother and the time he actually meets his brother. Maybe some of you are familiar with this story. Jacob is resting um, along a riverbank one day. And this man approaches him at night and begins to wrestle him, kind of out of the blue. This man approaches Jacob and they begin to wrestle on the river shore. We soon learn that this someone is God himself, but he could not overpower Jacob, and so instead, God touches Jacob's hip, and he dislocates Jacob's hip. Now, there are just a hundred questions that, that come out of the story, are there not? Like, like how, how is it that, um, although God could, like, dislocate his hip, he could not overpower him fully, even with the little tap of the finger, dislocate his hip, but he couldn't overpower him? How is it that the omnipotent God himself could not defeat this mere man? I think part of the story is that he could have if he wanted to. That's an p- important part of the story, right? He, he appeared to Jacob as a wrestling partner that Jacob could conceivably beat. And then that's a really important part of the story, that God appears to Jacob as a wrestling partner that Jacob conceivingly, at least in theory, could beat. And they wrestle through the night. When at dawn, God wants to finally quit. Jacob won't stop wrestling with the Lord until the Lord blesses him. And so the Lord asks him for his name. And Jacob responds, Jacob, I am a conniver. I am a manipulator. I am a cheater. That is all I have ever known about myself. That is who I am, God. I am Jacob. I use other people. That is how I have always gotten ahead in life. This is a raw, authentic rant from Jacob as he cries to God. This is who I am. This is my life. This is authenticity bursting forth from Jacob. And maybe for the first time, it's an authentic rant from Jacob as he admits that he is a deceiver, he is a manipulator, he is a cheat. And the Lord blesses him, he says, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. You will now be known no longer as a manipulator and a cheat, you will be known as a struggler. 
This relationship you have and I have with you will be marked by honesty and authenticity. And, and through our struggling, Jacob, you will overcome. And so the story continues. Israel gets up. He sees his brother Esau approaching. And instead, like every other time before, right, he doesn't put a shield around himself, uh, a shield of possessions, a shield of servants, a shield of family members. He had always done that before. Whenever there was a, a conundrum to be uh, something, a challenge in front of him, he always placed other people in front of him so that he wouldn't have to, to bear the brunt of the pain. For the very first time in his whole life, he is the one who says to his family, stay put, I'm going out to meet Esau. He and Esau embrace each other. They rejoice in each other's abundance. And before going their separate ways, Israel then sets up an altar to the Lord and calls it El Elohe Israel. Mighty is the God of Israel. There's another story in the Old Testament set around the same time frame. Job was an incredibly wealthy and righteous man. In fact, we're told that he was the wealthiest and the righteous man in all of the world at this point. And one day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and the Satan also came with them. Now, when we read passages about the Satan, we immediately get this picture in our head about this guy with the horns and wearing red pajamas. You know, he occupies his time in hell, and he is the great enemy of God. And although the enemy part of that is true, there's a backstory that is often forgotten and often misunderstood. Satan is not a proper name, first and foremost. It is an office that an angel of the Lord held. It is the office of the accusation, the accusing office. The Satan means accuser. It's the office of responsibility, uh, in particular, that this angel held in God's counsel. His role was to go you know, back and forth throughout the earth looking for people who were misbehaving, looking for people who were not being righteous. He was the police officer. He was the heavenly police officer going about the earth, remain, you know, making sure that everybody remained pure. It was when his own will became corrupt and he wanted God's throne that his accusations became lies and manipulative. And the way he does this is by telling half-truths. That's the way he's always done it. He only ever tells half-truths. Right? So Satan accuses rightly. He speaks rightly about humanity's sin. But in the process, he paints a picture of a, of a puffed-up, tyrannical God that could never love you in your sin, if he ever found out about your sin, if he ever found out about how horrible you are, if he ever found out about what you actually do in secret and what you actually think about your neighbor, he would condemn you, he would throw a lightning bolt at you. This is how Satan wants us to view God. God is angry, he is power hungry, he will not be, dis- be disrespected, and if he ever learns of our sins and our problems and our brokenness, he will beat us. He will beat us down, he will beat us down. That's what he convinced Adam and Eve that God was like, and that's why they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so Satan and God enter into a cosmic battle of God's true nature, with Job being at the very center of it all. Satan, Satan completely ruins Job to the point of total devastation. If you guys know the story of Job, Job is totally devastated, completely ruined. Everything that he had, every possession he had, every family he, he had was destroyed by either a fire, by thieves, or by tornadoes. Everything is gone. And the reason that Satan had to destroy everything, he had to break Job down to this, to this such extreme, is because he had to break Job's piety. He had to break Job's self-righteous attitude towards God. You know, when all of Job's ten children die and every possession he has been carted away by thieves, his response is this, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Yeah, my children just died in a tornado. But the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. 
Yes, all of my wealth has been stolen. Everything that I've ever possessed is gone. But hey, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. My piety demands that I rise above the hurt. I mean, come on, for those of you who have kids, if your kids die, what are you going to feel? Well, you know what? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Satan did all of this to break down Job's piety and self-righteousness so he could prove that when Job starts to scream at the sky, when he, when he starts to curse at God, that God would fly off the handle and God would reveal his true nature to him. Eventually, it gets to the point that he does start screaming at the sky, but not for another 30 chapters. And in the meantime, uh, Job has introduced the three friends who come along, and they're trying to convince Job that the reason you're, you're experiencing all this is because there's sin in your life. That's the reason that we experience hardship in life, is because we are sinners. We get what we deserve, in other words. But, he knows, but Job knows that's not true, because he was righteous. He was pious. He did do everything right, and so he knows that cannot be true. Eventually, Job is screaming at this guy, and he's blaming God for ruining him. He says, I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly. With the might of your hand, you attack me. You snatch me up and drive me before the wind. You toss me about in the storm. I mean, this, is, this is, seems a little timid, maybe, but this is Job cursing at the sky. This is Job screaming at the sky. This is his anger. His is, this is it. And then God begins to speak. Job, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? I mean, who is this that has made an idol out of your certainty? Who, who is this that has theorized about me but has never engaged me in a relationship? That's essentially what God is asking here. You, you've made a theory, you've made a concept about me, but you've never actually known me. What are you, what are you talking about, Job? And Job responds, he, you, you asked, Who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. God, you're right. God, God you're, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I had heard of you, right? I had made a theory about you. I had made a concept about you in my brain. I had reduced you down to something I could manage. But now I see you face to face. Now I see you face to face. Now I know you and I am humbled. Now this is a really hard book to understand, but in chapter 42 we actually get quite a few answers. First, God rebukes Job's friends for speaking wrongly, and he states, You have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. And it seems odd that God affirms what Job has spoken rightly, even though he had just you know, told Job that he had spoken falsely about him. So it seems a little odd, maybe a little contradictory on God's part. So what does it mean when... God says that Job had spoke what is right. Clearly, he didn't speak correct theology about who God is. So what does he mean? Well, the Hebrew word for right also means straight. It means straightforward. It might mean honest. Yeah, Job, you didn't have all your theology correct, but you were honest. Finally, Job, you were honest. Finally, you let me see the real you. Finally, you let the, the hurt and the angst and the anxiety in you breathe. It took that tearing away of your self-piety and your self-righteousness to do it. But when you did it, guess what? I did not throw a lightning bolt at you. I embraced you. 
In your screaming at the sky, in your slew of profanity to the sky, I did not condemn you. I did not create an earthquake that swallowed you whole. I came down and I gave you a hug. Job, you shoved your piety away. You finally let me see how you were feeling. And Satan was probably astonished, right? Wow, God did not throw a lightning bolt. God loved on someone who was honest to God about how they were feeling. God embraces Job, and he is honest about his mess, and God restores Job twice over everything he had lost. You see, for so long, too many of us have been convinced that what it means to have faith is to shun all doubt. To have faith, you need to shun questions. You need to to shove those aside. You cannot ask questions. You cannot have doubt. You cannot be skeptic. That faith somehow meant a psychological certainty instead of trusting in the character of God. That faith meant psychological certainty instead of being in relationship with our Heavenly Father amidst uncertainty. And enter Jesus. You see, if Jesus is the model of perfect faith, then he proves that perfect faith is an honest, authentic, struggling faith. When Jesus is the Garden of Gethsemane, hours before he'd be crucified, he cries out to God, If it is possible, take this cup from me. Father, I don't want to do this. God, I'm scared. I'm afraid of what is going to happen, God. I don't want to do this. If there is another way, please make it happen, God. Right? If if Jesus, you know, stood still in his piety and his self-righteousness, he said, hey, guys, I'm the Superman. Yeah, I know I'm about to be crucified on a Roman cross, but I'm not scared. My piety is going to rise above this. I'm not going to show my emotion. I'm not going to show my fear because it's just what we do. But he didn't, right? He was cowering in the corner, sweating drops of blood because his anxiety and fear were real and they were true. And he was crying out to God, wondering where God was. And then he's hanging on the cross a couple hours later and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, where are you? In the midst of this pain and turmoil, God, why did you leave me? Why am I here all alone? Why aren't you near me, Father? Doubting God, wondering where God is. This is Jesus. You see, whether you struggle with doubt or confusion or God's existence or any other number of other matters, the fact that you have this struggle does not indicate that you lack faith. Actually, your faith is strong to the degree that you're willing to honestly embrace your struggle. Had Jesus suppressed his sincere confusion and struggle for a, for a more pious, self-righteous appearance? If he would have just suppressed all of that fear and all of the confusion and all of the struggle so that he would appear to someone as the religious elite that he was? To appear to someone as the, the, the pious Lord, you know, the, the self-righteous Lord? then he would have demonstrated a defective faith and a less honest relationship with his father. Because cultivating a faith relationship with God has nothing to do with how appropriately religious we can appear. It has everything to do with the honesty and the authenticity of the relationship. I want to invite Emily forward, and we're going to reflect on this as we sing one final song together. Two thoughts before we go. And then we're going to engage in communion together as well. But two thoughts before we go. First, you know, doubt may be the thing that's keeping you from being baptized next week. You may have thought about baptizing, but you said, you know, I'm not worthy of being baptized because I have too many questions, I have too many doubts. 
too much uncertainty um, about, about the theology I hold. I haven't crossed every T, dotted every I. You know, I still have a lot of loose ends in regards to what I understand about all this stuff. I haven't come to the end of X, Y, and Z, whatever it may be. You know, I have too many doubts, theolo- too many theological loose ends. My friends, don't let that be the reason to, 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 to keep you at arm's length from Jesus. Do not let that be the reason. Relationships require searching. Relationships require mystery. For them to be alive and active relationships, they require something mysterious about them. They require searching. God is not a trinket that we can boil down and reduce into something we can hold in our hand. If we were to be in a a faith-based relationship with God, it's going to require a mysterious component that we will never, on this side of eternity, and probably in all of eternity, figure out. Second, Paul had a young friend that he was raising up to lead a church named Timothy. And in one of the letters that he writes to Timothy, he says this, This is a trustworthy saying that should be fully accepted. Like, if there's anything that you need to fully accept, right? If there's anything that you should not have absolutely no doubt about, this is it, this is it. All that other stuff, you know, like creation, yeah, okay, like Noah and Jonah and, and even God's existence, you know, or evil in the world. I don't know, whatever it may be, all the questions you may have, that's okay, you know, wrestle with those. But if there's anything that should be fully accepted, this is it. I, I, we are the worst of all sinners. And therefore, my friends, we are in need of rescue. We are in need of saving. We are sinners who have rebelled, and so we are in need of rescue. And the really good news is this, that Jesus came to save the worst of sinners. And he saved us, right? He saved the worst of sinners, the people who revealed and acknowledged the truth that we are a wreck inside, not the self-righteous, not the, not the pious. He didn't come to save the ones who didn't think they needed saving. He didn't come to save those who are healed already, the self-righteous, the, the, the pious. He came to save the ones who are in need of saving, the ones who recognized they were in need of saving. And for that very reason then, that we are shown mercy, the worst of sinners were shown mercy, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. And so if there's anything that we should not have any doubt over this morning, it is the fact that we are a wreck. I've never met a human that's not a wreck. I've never met a human that's not a sinful mess. And you have a couple options as to what to do about that. You can either admit that and say, I am in need of saving. Or you can put on a mask of self-righteousness and you can put on a mask of self-piety. And you can say, look at me. Look how religious I am. Look how great I am living my life. Isn't God happy with me? But for those who acknowledge the wreck of their life, for those who acknowledge that we are the worst of sinners, that it runs deep within us, there is really, really, really good news. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Sinners. 